Would you please stand with me? I'll be reading from the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. After the reading of God's word, I will proclaim, this is the word of the Lord. And I would invite you to respond prayerfully. Speak, Lord, your servants here. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything we might, he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the word of the Lord. Please take your seats. All right, you guys. How's it going? Good. Okay. Um, keep your Bibles open there to Colossians 1, Taproot Family. Uh, before we uh, do anything else, let me just remind you for a second um, what Taproot is all about, and I'll tell you why I think this is important. Taproot Church exists to make disciples of Jesus. We will then equip those disciples and we will then send them out on the mission of bringing his king and his kingdom everywhere, every day. I say that because I don't want you to forget that that's what this church is about. Yesterday, I had an incredible moment that I'm going to be thinking about for months to come where we were here gathered for uh, Lorene Babcock's memorial service and uh, after the, the, the service, I was just hanging out, talking to Pastor Jim, and uh, a father approached me and said, hey, my son has a question for you. And uh, the, the little boy might have been, I don't know, four, three or four years old. And um, I, to be honest, I'm not quite sure what, I was, what the question was going to be. I don't know what I was expecting. But this little boy looked at me and said, sir, who is Jesus? This kid had no idea. Never heard about Jesus. When I was sharing during the memorial talk, sharing the gospel of Jesus like Lorene would have wanted me to do, this kid asked his dad, Dad, who's he talking about? So let me just remind you again that life is found in Jesus. Flourishing and fullness is found in Christ, and there is a dying world out there who needs him. So don't forget what we are all about. Making disciples of Jesus. Making disciples of Jesus. All right. Uh, Colossians 1. We're going to look at verses 15 through 20. And uh, just as a, as a means of reminder so that you don't forget about the context of this book, you got to remember that there were some false teachers that were creeping their way into the Colossian church. And so Paul is writing to this 
church to help them, the Colossian Christians, stay on course. He is encouraging them. He is equipping them to remain steadfast and faithful to Jesus as they are running this race called life with all the difficulty that this broken, sin-sick world often throws our way. He is encouraging them to be courageous in an age of disbelief. He is equipping them to engage the world around them without losing their grip on the gospel. You got to remember that we are to be an outpost of heaven to our community. We are to be the intermingling of the presence of God in our cities, all the while remaining firm in the gospel. Now, one of the false uh, teachings that these uh, guys were suggesting was that Jesus was one of many spiritual beings that came from a divine essence. They believed that these. Uh, spiritual beings came to us like an ascending ladder which we can climb from one being to the next all the way into fullness. Fullness was one of their buzzwords. We could say it like this. Jesus, in their minds, is not exclusive. In their minds, there were many ways to achieve life and fullness and flourishing. Anybody ever heard something similar in 21st century South Seattle? In their minds, Jesus may be special, but he is hardly unique. He may be vital, but he alone is insufficient. We need Jesus plus. We need Jesus and. That was their perspective. Now, last week, we looked at Paul's prayer for this church in verses 9 through 14. And at the end of his prayer, he lingers on and he reminds us of the gospel of Jesus, what Jesus has done for us in verses 12 through 14. Paul says that God has qualified you and me to share uh, of the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. So Paul says, redemption, forgiveness, salvation, life is in Jesus. And so the question might have come up because of the the false teaching that was happening in Colossae, given what these guys were saying in Colossae, The question might come up, what makes Jesus so special? What gives this incredible power to his work? Why is Jesus so central to your thinking, Paul? And so verses 15 through 20 give us the answer to those questions. Paul says that Jesus' work is uniquely powerful because his person is uniquely glorious. Jesus is, as the apostle will say in verse 18, in all things, Jesus is preeminent. That is a fancy word that just means first. Jesus is first. He is supreme. Than him, there is no one greater. Beyond him, there is no one to whom we all must turn. Jesus is better. Whatever the Colossian false teachers are saying to the contrary, the work of Jesus is enough because his person is unique. 
Whatever the world says is good, Jesus is better. He's the one that we need. And so verses 15 through 20 are really the main point of the letter to the Colossian church and to you and me. These verses are like the molten core of Paul's message for the Colossian Christians and for us. Jesus is to be preeminent. He is first. He should have first place. He is supreme. He is everything that your heart needs. Look no further than to Jesus for fullness, all fullness, all flourishing, all life. Paul will say is to be found and lives in Jesus. He needs no supplementing. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. He is all that we need. And so Paul is writing to thrill our hearts with Jesus and to fasten and to hook our attention on him. And as Paul is making this point, it should not surprise you to discover that he does this in semi-poetic form. The contemporary scholar consensus is that verses 15 through 20 began as an early hymn used in the churches with which Paul was connected to celebrate and to worship Jesus. This is a song. And here's why I bring that up. You see, sometimes more is required than a mere academic statement of truth. Sometimes truth is so beautiful. Truth is so glorious, so rich that it makes us sing, that it demands that we sing. Sometimes truth is too beautiful for prose and requires praise. Beauty is one of the marks of truth. Theology, when it does its work, should make us sing, should make us adore, should make us Worship, And that's what Paul is after in verses 15 through 20. Not just uh, to inform our understanding, but to thrill and provoke our hearts. To make us stand in wonder and adoration before Jesus. May God do that today with us. So this song, this hymn to Jesus is... A hymn with two stanzas. Verses 15 through 17 are stanza one, and their focus is on the preeminence of Jesus over creation, the firstness of Jesus over creation. And then stanza two, verses 18 through 20, is all about Jesus' preeminence in salvation. Two stanzas Jesus is preeminent over creation, and Jesus is preeminent in salvation. But before we dive in, let me just pray real quick, and then we'll go from there. Father, thank you for this morning. I thank you for your bride, the church, the dearest place on earth. Speak to us today, Lord, through your words. Make Jesus beautiful. May our hearts see the beauty of Jesus, and may we be moved to worship him. May your spirit do a work that only he can do. I know there are innumerable circumstances and things that people have walked into this room with. Meet your people. The ways they need to be met in a way that only you can do. Do that supernatural work today, Lord, for your glory, for the good of your people, for the advancement of your kingdom, Lord. Draw people to yourself today. Transform us, change us, make us more like you. Help me to deliver your truth this morning, in Jesus' name.
Okay, let's talk basketball for just a second. Wait, just wait. You haven't heard me. <laughs> Don't cheer just quite yet. Basketball preseason is happening right now, and guess what? That's all I know about basketball. <laughs> Look, I know nothing about basketball. It is dangerous for me to begin talking about it because here is the truth. I am not qualified to do so. Now, let's say that Pastor Will was up here or that my friend Devin was up here and they began talking about basketball. Listen, you would be more prone to listen to them because they know what they are talking about. Now, let's take it a step further. What if some of the big names in the NBA were here right now to talk basketball with us? What if uh, Kawhi Leonard was here? Any Raptors fans? No? Nobody. Okay. Uh, (laughs) Clippers now. Well, that's even worse. Damian Lillard, any uh, Blazer fans? LeBron, Steph Curry? Nope. Okay, crickets. All right, so what if those guys were here right now talking about basketball? These guys are the top 1%, and they are most definitely qualified to talk to us about basketball. And so if they were here with all their qualifications, with all their credentials, you would listen, right? They know what they are talking about. They are qualified. Now, I say all of that to make this point. Why does the work of Jesus have the power that it does, and why does it make any difference in our lives? What's so special about the things that Jesus said and did? Well, Jesus is the only one qualified. Jesus is the only one capable. Jesus is the only one with the credentials to save, to rescue, to transform people. And so what Paul wants to do is he wants to lay those things out for us because he wants to hook your hearts and he wants to hook your attention on him. Jesus is the only one who is uniquely qualified to be first in our emotions, in our desires, in our minds, and in every nook and cranny of our lives. And Paul is going to show us why that is in two ways. Like I said before, Paul is going to show us first that Jesus is preeminent in and over creation, and second, that Jesus is first and preeminent in salvation. Let's look at the first point here. Jesus is preeminent over creation. Verses 15 through 17. Here are the credentials of Jesus. Here are the unique qualifications of Jesus for him to be adored and placed first in your hearts and in our lives. Jesus is preeminent. Jesus is first in creation. Look at verse 15. Paul says, first of all, uh, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The first idea you see here is all about revelation. God is invisible. John 1 verse 18 says this, no one has ever seen God, but Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus makes God known. Jesus makes the invisible visible. He discloses God to us. You want to know what God is like? Look no further than to Jesus. 
John 1.18 says this, No one has ever seen God, but the only begotten God who is the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. He has made Him known. It belongs to Jesus, God's Son, the second person of the Trinity, to make God known. He is the revealer. Now, the second idea you see in these verses is all about identification. You know, sometimes we talk about children being the spitting image of their parents. We might say, they look just like you. I can totally see the resemblance. Now, when Paul says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, he's saying that and more. This is who Jesus is. Paul is saying that all the contours of deity, everything that makes God God is, in, uh, is to be found in Jesus alone. Hebrews 1.3 uses a very similar language. The author of Hebrews says this, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That phrase, exact imprint, was used of a die stamping an image on a coin so that everything that was on the die appears exactly and precisely in the coin. Everything we can say of God can be said of Jesus, yet in such a way that Jesus is neither Father nor nor Holy Spirit, but the Son. He is the image of the invisible God. Now, that English word image may suggest a copy that is less than perfect. That is not what the Greek implies. In the Greek, this means embodiment or living manifestation. It means representation of divine authority in manifestation, revealing the qualities of God. This is who Jesus is. Let your hearts be thrilled with him as we behold him. This word reveals that Jesus throughout eternity has been in the presence of the Father and as a son has the qualities of the Father. So that when you see the Son, you've seen the Father. And because that is who he is, verse 15 Because he is God and discloses God to us, he is the firstborn of all creation. Now listen, I I know that many of you guys have been a part of the church for a long time, but this morning, as you hear these truths, let your hearts marvel about who Jesus is. He is not that guy that is wearing this white robe with a purple sash, and he's blonde, He's not just the baby in the manger. Let your hearts be enthralled with who he is, who he has always been, that he might be preeminent in your life. He is the firstborn of all creation. Now, often when we use that word firstborn, our emphasis falls on the word first. We think Firstborn as a way to communicate he is first among many others of the same kind. First chronologically in a sequence with others that will follow him. Firstborn. But not, that's not how the New Testament is using this word here of the Lord Jesus. There's another sense in the scriptures for that word firstborn. 
Not first in chronological sequence, but first in priority, first in reputation, first in majesty, first in rank, and first in standing. Our struggle with that word is that it seems to indicate that Jesus was the first one born of all creation, meaning that he was a created being. However, this is not how this word is used in the text. Because if he is the exact image of God, then he must not have a beginning. The Jewish idea of firstborn meant first in priority, not first in time. The Latin word used in the Septuagint means priority, supremacy, or sovereignty. Let me give you one example from Scripture. The book of Psalms, chapter 89, verse 27. This psalm is one about David's descendants, whom God will raise up and cause to sit on the throne. And it is actually a prophecy of the coming of Jesus, the Messiah. God says, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Firstborn there does not mean the very first king but it means the first in rank, the first in preeminence. It is a type of special, exalted status. That's the sense in which Paul is using the word here. He's not the first of the creatures, but he is the first in rank, reigning as Lord over creation. The image of the invisible God and the Lord of all. That's what Paul is saying. It's not like Jesus is the first domino in a long change of dominoes. Rather, Jesus is the hand that sets every domino on its end and the finger that knocks them all down. He's not the first in a sequence. He is the Lord over the whole of creation, the great creator himself. In that point, it's made even more explicit in verse 16 to reveal his sovereignty, to reveal his priority over creation, Paul explains the absolute dependence of creation upon Jesus. Without Jesus, creation falls apart. Verse 16 says this, For by him all things were created. The Greek actually says, says this, In him all things were created. Creation has its source in Jesus. Creation comes from Jesus. John 1, 1 says this, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was God in the beginning. All things are, were made through him and without him was not anything made that has been made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. He is the creator God. Now you got to remember, one of the Obsessions of these false teachers in Colossae had to do with supernatural beings. They had this dangerous curiosity and fascination with them. The angelic and the demonic. That's probably what Paul has in mind here in verse 16 when he speaks about Jesus, the creator of all things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. That phrase likely indicates rank in order of supernatural beings. And so Paul is agreeing with those that call us that there is such a realm. 
He's insisting that we not be so arrogant to assume ourselves the only intelligent beings in creation. There is a supernatural world. That might seem incredible to you, but it's certainly part of the biblical worldview. There are angels. There are demons. There's a supernatural realm. But he's also very keen here to put that realm in its place. The Colossian false teachers were getting carried away with all sorts of speculations about these things. And, put, and Paul puts them in their place. There was an unhealthy obsession with them in his day and in our day as well. Take five minutes and type the word angels in Amazon's search for books. And you'll see more than a hundred pages talking about speculating about obsessing over the angelic and the supernatural. But look at what Paul says. All things were created through him and for him. Whatever there is in the created world, whether angelic, even demonic, whether it's the atomic and the immaterial or the material, uh, the supernatural and the unseen, all of it ultimately serves him. It is for him. Romans 11.36 says this, For of him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. The world, the created order, and everyone and everything within it is Christological. It's about Jesus and for Jesus, for his glory and his honor and his praise. Your parenting, your schooling, your job, your friendships, your hobbies, it's for and it should be about Jesus. Richard Mellick said this, this means that Jesus is the goal of all creation. Everything exists to display his glory and ultimately he will be glorified in his creation. Matthew Henry said this, being created by him, they were created for him. Being made by his power, they were made according to his pleasure and for his praise. He is the end as well as the cause of all things. And look how Paul sums this whole thing up in verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is before all things. He is the pre-existing Lord. Now, there was an ancient heretic by the name of Arius who argued that Jesus was not God. He was merely a man, the first creature, Arius said. He had a genius for catchphrases. His little ditty was, there was, there was when he was not Speaking of Jesus, there was when he was not. There was a time when Jesus did not exist. He's merely a creature. That was Arius' teaching. But Paul insists here, doesn't he, that there never was when he was not. He is before all things. Before Abraham was, Jesus says, I am. He is the self-existing God who met Moses on the mountain and declared, I am who I am. He is the creator God prior to and independent of all his creatures. And he is the one in whom, Paul says, all things hold together. He is not only before creation and over creation and the source of creation. He is the sustainer of creation. 
Why is there something in not nothing? Why do you live and move and have your being? Why does your heart still pump blood around your body? Because Christ holds all things and sustains all things, upholding the universe by the word of his power. Matthew Henry said this, The whole creation is kept together by the power of the Son of God and made to consist in its proper frame. It is preserved from disbanding and running into confusion. As the Nicene Creed puts it so beautifully, summing up in many ways the teachings we find here, speaking of Jesus, he is God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made of one substance with the Father by whom all things came to be. That's why winds and waves obey him. Demons flee at his word. Why with a touch he can banish sickness or call a three-day dead Lazarus from the tomb and live again. And so the question is, what do you do with a Jesus like that? Ask yourself, what are we to do with a Jesus like that? He's not tame. He's not containable. He's not easily dismissed, but he is vast and glorious and omnipotent. What do you do with a Jesus like that, the creator God? What do you do with him? You don't marginalize him. You don't presume upon him. You don't treat him as an add-on or tack him into your list of things to do. No. You, we must bow before him in worship. And then we must stand up and rise to spend our lives in his service, living for his glory on the mission of making him known, the mission of bringing the king and his kingdom everywhere and every day, the mission of engaging people with his life through your life. Isn't that what the world needs? That we might make the invisible Visible, just like Jesus did. That's what you make with a Jesus like this. He is preeminent over creation. Then look again now at verses 18 through 20. This is the second stanza of this great Christ hymn. (coughs) Jesus is preeminent. He is first in salvation. Paul began back in Verse 15, telling us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That's a statement of his relationship to God. Now in verse 18, Paul says that Jesus is the head of the body, the church. That's a statement of his relationship with his people. That's you and me. Jesus, who is Lord of creation. Jesus, who is first of in creation, who through... Uh, who. Uh, All things are for him. Everything was made for him, and he sustains all things. This God stands even more intimately connected with the church, his people. There's a relationship of authority and lordship. He is the head of the body, the church. And as the body only does what the head directs, The church does not do anything without Jesus' direction and authority. He alone has authority in his church, and he has delegated that authority in many ways. Christ is to be the sustaining source for all activity in the church. 
J.B. Lightfoot said this, he is the head, the inspiring, ruling, guiding, combining, sustaining power, the mainspring of its activity, the center of its unity, and the seats of its life. I love that. John Calvin said this, it is Jesus alone who has authority to govern the church, that it is he to whom alone believers ought to have an eye, and on whom alone the unity of the body depends. Our eyes as the bride of Christ must be on Jesus. You can't miss this either. Jesus was not voted in. Jesus was not set or appointed to this position. No, he was given to the church as a gift of God. What an indescribable gift that is. Commentary I read this week says this, Christ is therefore God's gift to the church. He as head over all things and as head of the church is a love gift of God, the Father to the church. Now this connection, this relationship we have with Jesus is an organic connection. We are one in him. He is the head. We are the members of his body. And so this relationship is profoundly intimate. The church is his body. He is our head and we are one with him and in him with one another. And just as Jesus is the source and the origin of creation, so here he is the source and the origin of the church. Look at verse 18 again. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Something new has begun in Jesus is what Paul is saying. We saw Paul use that word, firstborn, back in verse 15, where it means first in rank, first in preeminence over creation. Here it means first in rank and preeminence over those to whom God gives new life, resurrection life. It does not mean first in the sequence of those who've been raised. There were others who were raised from the grave, Lazarus, for example. But it does mean that Jesus, by his resurrection, has a position of unique preeminence and lordship and authority. Something entirely new, unique, and significant has broken into the middle of this broken world in the resurrection of Jesus. A new beginning, a new creation, a new people has come to life when Jesus broke the bonds of death and stepped alive from the tomb on the third day. And why does Jesus' resurrection have this particular significance that others who were raised from the dead, like Lazarus, for example, never can? It's because Jesus isn't like Lazarus. Paul puts it in verse 19, In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The resurrection of Jesus changes everything. Because everything that God is, Jesus is. Because nothing of God is absent from Jesus. His resurrection, unlike any other, begins a new world. Births something new. In fact... Through him, verse 20, God was reconciling all things to himself. The creation that was subjected to the curse when sin intruded into our world, that same creation one day will be made new. The old song says this, He came to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. It was God in the man Jesus who was nailed to the tree. 
It was deity united to humanity laid in the tomb. It was the infinite, eternal, unchangeable creator made flesh who rose firstborn from among the dead. And because it was, nothing will be the same again. Nothing can be the same again. Creation will one day be swept up into new creation. Sin will be banished. Death will die all by the blood of Jesus. That's who Jesus is. Albert Barnes said this. This is not on the screens. This to us is a most precious truth. We have a Savior who is in no respect deficient in wisdom and power, grace to redeem and save us. There is nothing necessary to be done in our salvation which he is not qualified to do. There is nothing which we need to enable us to perform our duties, to meet temptation and to bear trial which he is not capable to impart. In no situation of trouble and danger will the church find that there is a deficiency in him. In no enterprise to which she can put her hands will there be a lack of power in her great head to enable her to accomplish what he calls her to do. We may go to him in all our troubles, weaknesses, temptations, and needs, and may be supplied from his fullness. Just as if we were thirsty, we might go to an ocean of pure water and drink. Now, to finish this whole thing, at the end of verse 18, Paul tells us why. Why Jesus did all he did. Why God took flesh and dwelt among us. Why in the union of two natures and one person forever, our salvation was secured in Jesus. Why did all this happen? He did it all. Verse 18 says this, that in everything he might have preeminence. He did it all that he might have first place. First place over creation, over the universe. First place as head over the church. First place in your heart. That is the place he deserves, that he is due with no one or nothing in close second. The big question is this. How do you put Jesus first in your life? How do you put Jesus first in your your heart, in your priorities? How do you bow appropriately before the preeminent Jesus and acknowledge his preeminence, his firstness for yourself? Well, the Colossian false teachers, remember, were saying, we can give you fullness. You can get fullness if you perform our rituals if you invoke angels, if you give yourself to strict asceticism and self-denial, that's the path to fullness. 21st century, South Seattle might say, the way to fullness is all kinds of other things. Pleasure, power, money, success. But verse 18 says, Paul says, God says, no. Fullness Fullness dwells in one place, Jesus. If you want fullness, if you want flourishing, if you want life, you must go to him. So how do you make Jesus 
first who is the preeminent Lord? How do you bow before him and have him first in your life who is king of kings and who is Lord of lords? You go to him for fullness instead of any of the counterfeits that this world offers. Fullness will not be found in success. Fullness will not be found in power. Fullness will not be found in money. Fullness will not be found in a spouse or in uh, relationships. Fullness will not be found in pleasure. Fullness will be found in Jesus. You and I must recognize that Jesus can never be a mere accessory in our lives, a line in our resume while we pursue real fullness by building our portfolio and accumulating more and more, whatever that is. We need to refuse to see Jesus as a tool for social acceptance. We need to stop using Jesus when he's convenient in ignoring him when he's not. And instead, we must come to recognize that he is the fountain of living water and that we must go to him and drink and drink and drink until we're filled. That's how you make Jesus preeminent. You don't go to the broken wells of this temporary world where there is no water, there is no satisfaction. And if there is, it's temporal. Empty promises is what you'll find apart from Jesus. But in Jesus, there is fullness. And when you come to him and drink, you will never thirst again. You must recognize that he is the only safe harbor. So when you come to him, you can rest. And you can come to him as you are. You don't have to clean up to come to Jesus. You don't have to look a certain way, dress a certain way, use your church clothes. You can come to him as you are and he will take you in. Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Come to Jesus and rest. And when you rest on Jesus, you put him first. You don't look for rest where no rest can be found. Not in your work not in your relationships, not in your behavior modification, not in doing better or trying harder. But in Jesus, we find rest for our weary souls. And when you rest in him, you make much of him and you show him to be preeminent because you trust in him to be who he says he is. Let me finish this morning by saying this. This is who Jesus is. There is no one like him. Oftentimes we make Jesus to be who he is not. Again, we we put him in these boxes. He's Christmas Jesus. He is Santa Claus Jesus. And we only go to him when we need something from him. We've got all these, all these boxes for Jesus. No, th- church, this is who Jesus is. 
Let me ask you, as you have seen Jesus, as we've exalted over who Jesus is, he's first in creation. All things are for him, from him. They are sustained in him. He is first in and over salvation. Let me ask you, church, let me ask myself, is Jesus first? Is Jesus first in your bank balance? In your budgeting? Is he first in your time? In the way you use your days? Is he first in your family? Is he first in your friendships? Is he first in your work? Is he first in the way that you speak? Is he first in what you allow your eyes to linger upon? Is he first in your heart? Is he first in your priorities? Is he preeminent in your life? Is he the preeminent Lord who he is? Is he everything your heart needs? Is he first in your life? Do you evaluate decisions and actions on the basis of what will bring Jesus most glory? Does he take first place in the beginning of your day? Does the thought of his ways and commands pervade your decision-making? May God help us that it might be so. If you guys got a bulletin when you walked in, you'll find there was an insert in that bulletin. Uh, that insert has a couple things. The first thing that it has is just some questions for you to think through and ask yourself this week. Ponder through those, meditate upon those, take those questions to Jesus. And second, what it has is a list of practical application, applications things you can do, verses you can think upon and meditate upon this week that will help you see the beauty of Jesus. I would encourage you to use those. Is Jesus first in our lives? There is no one like him. He deserves first place. Again, what do we do with a Jesus like that? Not tame, not containable, not easily dismissed. What do we do with him? We don't marginalize him. We don't presume upon him. We don't treat him as an add-on or a tack-on into our line of things, but we bow before him in worship. We surrender our lives to him. We throw ourselves at his feet just as we are, and then we rise to live for him, to give us to the mission of bringing his king, the king and his kingdom everywhere, every day for his glory, for the good of other people, and for the advancement of his unshakable kingdom. Let's pray. Jesus, my words are so not adequate. They are not enough to try to describe who you are. There is no one like him. So, Father, more than what I could say, more than any explanation I could give, I pray that your spirit would help us see the beauty of Jesus. That may, may your spirit open our eyes to see and behold Christ. And may we see him for who he is. And as we do that, may that 
revolutionize our lives. May, the revel- may a revelation of Jesus cause a revolution in our hearts. And may we respond appropriately to who he is. May, we, may you, by your spirit, give us grace to, put, to make Jesus first in all that we do. Whether work, relationships, parenting, friendships, hobbies, anxieties, things we're wrestling with, Lord. Help us by your spirit to put Jesus in the first place. To see things through that lens. Is Jesus in the picture here? Do that as a work that only you can do. Do that work for your glory. Do that work for the good of Burien. Do, the, do that for the, uh, for the good of the south end of Seattle. And do that for the expansion of your kingdom. That many people might come to know Christ. Lord, and if there's anybody here that does not know Jesus, draw them to yourself. Help them to see how much we need Jesus, how beautiful he is. And now we respond. And just like these verses are a song we will sing. Because sometimes truth is so beautiful that it demands that we sing. And we will do that today for you. I pray this in your name. Amen.